0: You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science,
1: and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you are here with us today. I have two special guests with me. We have Shane Pata with us today. Shane is a serial entrepreneur who has built and scaled three companies that have all been truly disruptive in their space. We are going to talk today about the current company that he is building and scaling. I'm very excited to tell you about Harvard MedTech and what they are up to. We also have Cameron Helmuth with us from Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors. He is also the host of the Doctor's Eyes Only podcast, and he heads up Vestia's orthopedic practice group. So very excited to have Cameron with us as well. He's got a great handle on what's happening in the technology side for orthopedics and beyond. And as we talk about Harvard MedTech, They are a company that has put together a program that combines virtual reality and behavioral health interventions to allow patients to manage their pain and other symptoms, things like PTSD, anxiety, depression, poor sleep, and more without the use of narcotics or other pharmaceutical agents. In other words, this is a way to help patients get on the other side of a lot of things that are troubling them without the use of opioids and other narcotics. So we are so glad to have both Shane and Cameron here with us today. In full disclosure, we absolutely love Harvard MedTech and Mammoth's Health and Tech Fund is an investor in Harvard MedTech. We are very proud to be an investor. We're proud to partner with them in this incredible work that they are bringing to all of us.
2: Hi, Tommy. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm very much looking forward to sharing what we're up to at Harvard MedTech.
0: Yeah, same here, Tommy. I'm so excited to co-host with you, learn from Shane, learn about Harvard MedTech. I was sharing before we started recording, I'm
1: hearing the name Harvard MedTech everywhere, so I can't wait to jump in and learn more. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Shane, our listeners love to hear people's stories. So, I definitely want to talk about Harvard MedTech and how you're combining virtual reality with behavioral health and audience this is especially exciting for me you're going to have back to back virtual reality episodes you're going to hear from Shane this week and then next week you're going to hear from Renji Bejoy who runs Immersed the number one virtual reality app in the world so you're going to get the best of both worlds you're going to get the best of what i'm seeing out of the healthcare side of virtual reality, and then we're going to have workplace productivity. So it's going to be a virtual reality special segments here over the next couple of weeks. We'll get to all that. But Shane, first, our listeners love to hear people's stories. I'm sure you didn't grow up thinking, you know, I'm going to go disrupt three different pretty major verticals. How did you become a serial entrepreneur?
2: I grew up on a small island in the Caribbean. I went to Harvard at 16, and it was just like the candy store to me. just all these really bright people. It was really a a fantastic discovery process. And it's really that same curiosity and desire to learn that has led me over my career to look at things that seem like they're suboptimal or is there a better way of doing things and creating a better solution. And it's really that process that's allowed me to start, scale, and sell five businesses, including taking one public along the way. And three of those companies have been in healthcare. They were in different verticals. Two of them were medical devices. One was a tech-enabled services model. But the commonality was they all brought innovative new approaches to creating a better patient experience, which then led to better patient outcomes. And that's really what the healthcare industry is supposed to be all about.
1: How old were you when you actually, you were in a Caribbean island you'd mentioned, but even before that, you were born in India, correct?
2: That's correct. I was born in India and lived there until I was about three years old when my father was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to Cornell. So from there, we moved to upstate New York, Ithaca. Spent four years there. Then we moved back to India for two years. And then my father decided to move back to the States. And we lived in Florida for about three months and then moved to the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Croix.
1: So growing up for a lot of the time in St. Croix, I mean, that's such beautiful scenery. Do you get to go back and visit often?
2: I really cherish having grown up there as a kid. All the best stuff, the coolest stuff was free, running around, swimming in the ocean. And it was just a great environment. And I do miss it, but it's it's not that easy to get to. So uh, these days I get there maybe once every couple of years. Life just gets really busy, especially when you're building companies.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And Shane, at age 16, you actually got accepted to Harvard. So tell us about that.
2: There's really no magic to it, Tommy. I just was fairly bored when I was in high school. I skipped a couple of grades and then I uh, well, actually took a bunch of night courses. And so I just had an opportunity to graduate at an early age and I grabbed it because I wanted to go off to the next adventure and Harvard seemed like a great opportunity for someone like me who's just naturally curious.
0: That's amazing. So obviously, you had a pretty amazing experience. But what was the, I guess, when you made that first jump, what was the vision? What was the goal? Did you know, I want to be this when I grow up? I want to study this at Harvard? Or were you just open minded as you entered in the college gates?
2: Well, it's interesting because, you know, being of an Indian ethnic background, there's sort of an unwritten rule that all Indian children shall become doctors or at least try to become doctors. So I was indoctrinated with that philosophy. But, you know, for me personally, I was just curious. I took courses in everything from art history to applied math. And actually, my passion ended up ironically being neurobiology. I was a biology major. The focus was in neuro. And it just is something that really resonated with me. But it wasn't a pre-thought out plan. The plan was just to take advantage of the opportunity, learn everything that I could and be around a bunch of really smart people and ask them a lot of questions. And hopefully in that process, get some enlightenment.
1: And what was it like stepping on campus as a 16-year-old? I mean, you might be in some classes with a 22-year-old. What was that like? You yeah, know, it was
2: interesting because you know there is naturally a level of intimidation when you go to Harvard, especially at that age. Yes, I was younger than everyone else. Once you get there and you get over the first month's jitters and you really get into it, then all of a sudden it really doesn't matter. You know, there's obviously kids who came from really high end boarding schools like Exeter or Andover, where they had the opportunity to have a lot more resources than I did. But all of that within a month or two, everyone's on the same level playing field. And it was really a wonderful environment where I think everyone respected each other because they recognized that everyone had had a journey to get there. And actually, ironically, one of the greatest values of Harvard was learning from my fellow classmates. There were some people who were just incredibly brilliant in various ways and areas. The guy who was next door to me ended up being one of the world's leading experts on lepidoptery, butterflies. I remember walking into his room first day when we were all unpacking and just looking at his wall. You know, this kid had a thousand butterflies and he could tell you all these interesting arcane details about each one. So the point is that people had a lot of passion and these are people who had had a chance to really dive deep.
1: So what was it that ultimately then prompted you to go out and start that first company?
2: I was actually on my way out to San Francisco from Boston to go work as a software engineer. And I ended up stopping that journey in Minneapolis. We started our first company uh, that summer. I ended up never completing the journey to San Francisco because we just had a great idea. It was actually a consumer products play. We built it up, but we got very lucky. We built it up to about $20 in revenue in a couple of years, and then I sold out. And I just had the entrepreneurial bug, and since then, I've never worked for anyone. I'm sort of my own worst critic, but I love having the independence, as well as the responsibility that comes along with being an entrepreneur.
1: And what kind of consumer product was it?
2: It was a painter's hat, which at the time was a big deal. It was sort of the replacement to the traditional baseball cap, you know, so it created quite a buzz. We were very clever. I mean, none of us had any money. You know, when I graduated, I had about $500 in my pocket, and by the time I was in Minneapolis, I had $100. So everything was done off of creativity, you know, asymmetric marketing, using asymmetric financing strategies, basically trade debt to finance the company. And as an entrepreneur, you can work very hard, you can have a great idea, but we got some lucky bounces. That's also part of the landscape. And we persevered through the hard times until we got those lucky breaks and the company just really took off. And to me, you know, it really was my first exposure to consumer marketing. And that is a theme that, that orientation towards the consumer, even in healthcare, we don't think that way, has shaped a lot of my vision and what I've tried to create in all of these companies. It's always been, how do we maximize the patient experience? Because if you have a better patient experience, the consumer, in this case, the patient, will get better faster. And that's ultimately what healthcare is supposed to be about, right? How do we help sick people get better as quickly as we can
1: Absolutely. So Shane, moving from the consumer product side, you know, clearly by then you'd had this entrepreneurial itch, it had worked out, you know, I've gone through it. Then you're at this position where you're saying, what's next? How did you deal with that kind of void moving from company number one to figuring out what company number two was going to look like?
2: You know, in terms of, in a lot of this stuff, you know, Tommy, it's not usually a preordained plan. Uh, Part of it is grabbing opportunities when you see something can be improved in whatever way it is. I mean, that's sort of the classic toolkit of every entrepreneur. Can I do this in a way that's going to add more value to whoever is willing to pay for it? And so in that journey, there's a couple of examples. You know, one was a medical device company, KitPacking, the first company to do that when the reimbursement methodology changed. A local area network software company. This is back in the days when you had single user machines. But I think, you know, one of the companies that I'm the most proud of, I had gotten into a really bad motorcycle accident and, you know, I was in a coma and I almost died and I was in a hospital for about three months. You know, I was on about seven simultaneous infusions a day. I was really broken. And they said, Shane, hey, look, you've recovered, but you either need to stay in the hospital for another month or two, or you can go to an infusion clinic every day because what you need requires institutional grade equipment. And we need to monitor you. And to me, the idea of staying in the hospital for another month had zero appeal. I mean, hospitals are wonderful places to heal, but it's not a place you want to spend a lot of time in unless you have to as a patient. And so I took the alternative of going to an infusion clinic, but it wasn't a great experience. It's a sterile environment. You have to go there every day, spend three or four hours. And so the idea was, wouldn't it be a much better patient experience if they could receive everything that I was receiving in their own home? how do I solve the problem? And so I helped develop the first truly ambulatory infusion device. It could do everything that a hospital pump could do, except it could do it in the patient's home. It was about 20% of the size of a hospital device. And this was before the internet. We solved the remote patient monitoring problem by doing voiceover data protocols over copper wires when people had landlines. So if you are one of our patients, Tommy, and you were receiving your infusions, we can monitor you, see were you being compliant, We could remotely adjust your settings so that the therapy you're receiving was appropriate for your stage of recovery. And we could do all this, uh, reprogram your pump while we are talking to you on the phone. So it really helped create the paradigm that allowed the home infusion therapy to flourish and become the industry that it has today. And the premise was simple, that if we can move the point of care out of an institutional setting into a patient's home, it's a much better environment to heal in. You are surrounded by people who care. It's a warm environment. It's relatively infection-free compared to a hospital setting. And obviously, the cost setting is a lot lower. So from a healthcare perspective, you're saving the system money. So really, everyone wins. The letters that we would get unsolicited from patients saying, you know, thank you so much. You've helped give me my life back or, you know, you've made such an impact. The fact that we were able to help people on such a visceral level helping them heal in a more optimal fashion was really, really the biggest reward that I got out of it. How do we move the point of care into the patient's home? How do we use technology to help us achieve that? And how do we do it in as holistic or healthy a fashion as we can?
1: Well, Shane, that's a perfect segue into telling us about Harvard MedTech and everything you're doing there to help use virtual reality and behavioral health interventions to allow patients to better manage their pain, all these other things that come about as a result of that without the use of narcotics or opioids or other pharmaceutical agents. So it's really exciting what you're up to, but tell us how that came to be. I had sold my last company and I
2: thought I was going to retire. It's the second time I've tried to retire. It doesn't suit me. (laughs) And within six months, I was climbing the walls thinking about, okay, what's the next problem that we can help try to solve? You know, we're all very aware of the fact that there's an opioid epidemic in our country and as many people or almost as many people have died as a result of the pandemic, both horrible things. But the opioid epidemic, ironically, has never gone away. I mean, the number of deaths continue. And so it was started off on a quest to figure out, can we create a solution for the opioid epidemic or at least help mitigate it in some manner? That then led to the next question, the obvious question, why do people take opioids? And the answer was, they take opioids to help manage their pain. I then started to look, ask the next questions in terms of, well, how do opioids actually do that? And, you know, the answer was sort of disappointing. They don't. It's a pleasure center drug. It's the same as alcohol, not passing judgment, but it doesn't really fix anything. All we're doing is giving people a masking agent.
0: Band-aid. And
2: whatever the underlying causal agent that's causing them pain, whether it's acute pain or chronic pain, all opioids are doing are kicking the can down the road because the patient's going to be in the exact same position that they were in four or six hours later after the opioids wear off, if you will.
1: So I can tell both of you already understand this more than I do. Are you saying, Shane, that what the opioids do is they're just releasing the feel-good hormones in the brain that then kind of override the pain center is that what happens that's one way of thinking about it and you know because what they do is they hijack
2: the pleasure center of the brain so that the pleasure you get from the agent whether it's alcohol or opioids overrides the pain sensations it would be the same tommy as if your doctor told you hey tommy you have chronic pain go home and take four shots of tequila every four hours you wouldn't be feeling a whole lot of pain I don't think we've really done anything to help you address why you're feeling pain. And then unfortunately, you know, if you were to do that, Tommy, every day for a month, there's probably a high likelihood that you might become an alcoholic. And we're surprised why do we have an opioid epidemic in our country when we're prescribing these pleasure center, highly addictive drugs to patients for long periods of
1: time. So Cameron, am I understanding this right? Like The pain is actually still there. I'm just not feeling it because the pleasure center is basically overriding that, but I'm not making the pain actually go away. It's still there. I'm just masking it with, you know, overwhelming it almost saturating it with the pleasure center instead.
0: Yeah. And then I think what science has proven is that that overriding or that large amount of dopamine rush that that sensation of feeling good that's the addictive behavior that is so hard to kick you think of it in every day right you see it It could be in caffeine it could be in hey i have a cold right cold medicine doesn't actually fix a cold it masks your symptoms and then once that wears off you have to take another one and another one and another one but the underlying symptoms are still there you're simply masking The problem, and I think, Shane, where I love what Harvard MedTech is trying to accomplish is the fact that if you can treat truly that underlying condition and find a way to do it where it's economic, right? Because the other unspoken beast here is that is a very financially motivating world to be in, to have someone rely on your good feeling drug constantly, come back to you every four to six hours and need that to feel better. So... I guess I'm very curious on how, how is Harvard MedTech working on fixing that underlying issue to remove the dependency of a constant dopamine hit or some feel-good drug like opioids?
2: Great question, Cameron. Let me answer it this way. If we take a look at what causes chronic pain, which is what most patients are given opioids for. There's really three buckets that these patients fall into. One bucket are patients who actually have structural issues, if you will, like osteoarthritis or so on. Let's put those patients aside. But those are only 20% of the patients. The other 80% of the patients have either one of two challenges. They either have emotional pain as a result of a traumatic incident that has been burned into the emotional center of their brain and continues to send off signals. The poster child of that is phantom limb syndrome. Let's say I had lost my arm through an amputation. I'm still continuing to feel pain in that arm. How can that possibly be? It's physically impossible. Well, the answer is the trauma of the amputation or losing the arm scarred me in my emotional center of my brain. And that takes on a life of its own and sends out signals. In fact, there was an interesting article in JAMA where they compared pain reprocessing therapy, which they called it which is really behavioral health interventions for patients who have emotional pain, which is about 50% of the chronic pain patients. And they compared that to the usual care, which is opioids and nerve blocks. The behavioral health interventions were seven times more effective in helping the patients than the usual care that's administered today with the opioids and the nerve. And that was a big article in JAMA. And it came out last year, and that was fantastic. The other challenge you have is that you have... Patients who have a hyperactive thalamus, that's about 25% of the population. You know, and these patients oftentimes deemed being too sensitive to pain. Really what's going on is they have a overactive thalamus that's constantly checking for pain signals. Think of it as a measurement problem. And that's where virtual reality part of our program really comes in. We use virtual reality as a tool to help patients learn how to master or optimize the way their thalamus is functioning. If there's any physicians in the audience, they'll immediately get this. We rely on the distraction principle, which every physician is familiar with, that by providing alternative stimuli, the patient gets so focused on that, in this case, the headset, that secondary signals are deprioritized. Secondary signals are hunger, need to go to the bathroom, and pain. So when that patient has that VR headset with the right type of programming, they don't feel their pain because their brain has automatically deprioritized that. And the level of pain relief it provides is about 50% analgesic benefit, which is the exact same benefit you would get from taking an opioid. So let's say, Tommy, you're a patient who, on a scale of 1 to 10, had a pain level of an 8. If you took an opioid, about 45 minutes later, you would tell me your pain level is down to a 4. If, on the other hand, we put one of our VR headsets on you, within 4 or 5 minutes, you would tell me your pain level is also down to a 4. So it's much faster acting, is just as powerful, and you don't have the addiction qualities. The obvious problem is what happens when they take off the headset. They still continue to get about an hour's legacy pain relief, hour to hour and a half, depending on the patient, because it takes a while for that brain to go from its distracted, hyper-focused state back to its normal state. But if you repeatedly expose the patient to this therapy over 90 days, Another concept in neurobiology called neuroplasticity kicks in. The brain has an ability to rewire itself. If you achieve this distraction repeatedly every single day, after 90 days, your brain's going to say, hey, Tommy wants this to happen, and I'm going to hardwire this, go find fresh brain cells, build a new neural network, so Tommy has the ability at will to summon this response. So think of it this way, that we're making patients more pain resilient, where they can manage and they don't feel any impairment because of whatever pain signals they're receiving. So between the VR and the behavioral health interventions, it is highly effective for about 80% of the patients who have chronic pain.
1: Shane, what I want to do for a moment, just to kind of walk us through, let's take a case study, a hypothetical case study of a soldier who returns home and has PTSD, how could this technology possibly benefit that soldier?
2: Great question. You know, PTSD is kind of a broad term that captures a combination of anxiety, depression, they have poor sleep architecture, sort of all of the challenging behavioral health conditions lumped into one place for that patient. We've treated a lot of special forces soldiers, first responders, you can look at them on our website, we have great testimonials from that audience That really the behavioral health interventions are really critical for helping them process the traumatic experience that is causing their PTSD. Oftentimes, these soldiers may also have wartime injuries where they're having some level of pain, and that's where the VR part of our program really helps them manage that pain as well. So it really provides an end to end solution for those patients.
1: So that soldier could walk into a VA hospital or VA system talk with their doctor, say that they have ongoing pain issues, and that doctor could prescribe your treatment protocol? Is that how it works?
2: Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, we right now, in addition to our efforts in the commercial markets, we also have a contract with the VA. Any physician anywhere in the country can prescribe our product. And it's exactly that use case. In the case of the VA, because of their long lead time for patient appointments, We're the perfect solution where we can augment their internal resources so that these patients don't have to wait three months or six months for their first visit. We want to take the opportunity to say that that's a reactive use of our product where something has already happened. There's also another use of our product, a proactive use. And this is really where orthopedic surgeons love our program. An orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon, they are great at what they do in surgery, whether it's replacing a joint, fixing a broken bone, and I'm being simplistic in this example, they do a lot of stuff, but they're very focused on that part of it. But their patients generally have two other issues. Most of their patients have some pain when they go to see them because they had an accident that the surgeon is trying to fix as well as the trauma of that incident has created emotional challenges. Those patients are often anxious or depressed. So if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you have a patient, they have pain and they have behavioral health issues, neither of which you have the background or specialization or frankly desire to want to tackle. And our program is fantastic for Providing better surgical outcomes because orthopedic surgeons know that if the patient already has opioids or narcotics in their bloodstream, they're going to have poorer outcomes. And we give a way for the patient to manage their pain preoperatively without introducing opioids or narcotics into the bloodstream. Also, it has been well documented that if the patient is more emotionally stable, i.e., more resilient. After the surgery, they're going to bounce back faster and recover faster. So from an orthopedic surgeon's perspective, we're the perfect complementary product. We solve the two issues that they don't want to address, but they know that if they are successfully addressed, like with our program, the surgeon will have much better outcomes and a happier patient. And that's ultimately all orthopedic surgeons want to have happy patients. That's why they're doing what they're doing. And we help them achieve that.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I have yet to meet an orthopedic surgeon that looks forward to revision surgeries, fixing what they've already fixed once before. But I think that's a great point. You know, pain management is a necessary evil for almost all orthopedics today, but it's very high risk. It's very high liability. Frankly, they don't want to hire that in-house. They want to offload it. But that challenge then is the likelihood of them coming back for a residual issue that frankly, they can't fix, right? That is because they have not fixed it preoperatively. The other thing that immediately came into my mind is that the other reality with orthopedic surgeons and all physicians is that everyone is getting pinched for insurance reimbursements and how they get paid, right? So things like physical rehabilitation and other ancillary services inside of their practice that does not rely strictly on their clinical expertise, they're in high demand. But the challenge there still is the manpower and the overhead of actually running said service. I'm curious, what does it actually take in practical use in a private practice orthopedic setting for someone to administer this preoperatively and postoperatively for the optimal patient outcome? Man hours, like what do you guys recommend for that physician thinking of using Harvard MedTech?
2: Great question, Cameron. Just in the same way that we want to deliver a great patient experience, we also want to deliver a great experience to our physician partners. So we make everything super easy for them. All they need to do is prescribe the product. We take it from there. We'll ship the VR headset to the patient's home within 48 hours. They start their behavioral health interventions. Everything is done remotely. So there's no need for the physician to hire any staff. They don't have to make any investment in any equipment. They don't have to manage all these other resources. We take care of all of that for them. We send them weekly notes so that they know how their patient is progressing, so that uh, they're still in charge of that patient's care. They're still the quarterback, if you will. But all of these things, the pain management and the behavioral health interventions are being addressed. And, you know, and to your point, Cameron, even if a physician wants to have behavioral health clinicians, it's really hard to hire them. There's a shortage around the country. The waiting times to get an appointment with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, especially if you're in secondary or tertiary markets or anywhere in the country, is like oftentimes is months again. It's certainly weeks. And that patient needs help immediately. And so we take care of all of the logistics and make it super easy for that physician to be able to take care of their patient. We do all the heavy lifting, and yet we also keep the physician informed and At the center of what's happening with that patient
0: and in optimal use is the ideal patient outcome using both preoperatively and something postoperatively after the actual surgery takes place
2: yes different physicians may want to apply it differently Mm
1: -hmm. but the optimal use case is exactly like you mentioned so It sounds like from my perspective, for the orthopedic practice, you're really helping them achieve higher outcome scores. And as we move more and more into value-based medicine, those are going to continue to matter more and more and more. You're also giving an ancillary revenue stream to the medical practice which, as a patient, I actually appreciate that. I want my doctors to have ancillary revenue because that helps mitigate this downward pressure on reimbursements being paid to that medical practice, which ultimately means they get to spend more time and energy caring for me because they have that ancillary revenue to help offset, especially if that ancillary service is helping me have a better outcome as a patient. Why would I not want to do this? From the patient side, it's better. I can have that treatment in my house. I mean, it's like your story comes full circle here, Shane. You're going from the original company and now I can do the treatment in my house through the combination of virtual reality and behavioral intervention. And I have a better outcome with my surgery. And my physician has more resource and time to be able to dedicate to me as a patient. That's a win for everyone.
2: It is, Tommy. And thank you for articulating in that way. We want to be great partners. And some of our partners look at the world in a certain way. So, you know, we have great sponsorship and adoption by thought leaders in the orthopedic space. Alex Vaccaro at Rothman, Nick Theodore at Johns Hopkins, Matt McGirt at CNSA. You know, we're doing stuff at Duke, at Vanderbilt, all sorts of great stuff. And they're looking at it just purely from the outcomes and the science perspective of it. But we also serve and partner with a lot of independent orthopedic practices that may be two-person to 20-person practices and they look at the world slightly differently. They wanna have great outcomes, but there's also financial pressures in those settings. And it's getting harder and harder. And one of the real misalignments in healthcare is that a lot of times physicians are only compensated for when they're doing a procedure or seeing a patient. Yet in reality, they are looking out for the interest of that patient also in between office visits. So through remote patient monitoring fees that the insurance companies pay them, to your point, it's a great ancillary revenue opportunity.
1: Shane, one of the things that I absolutely love about what you're building, if we take this to more of a retail type of business, what you've done is turned the physician's prescription really into a drop ship ticket. I mean, this is incredible. I was talking with a young entrepreneur just a week ago. He's developed a pretty neat product, but what he was doing was having his manufacturer ship all of those products directly to his doorstep, then he was mailing them to the end consumer. And this was a young college student, part of a Shark Tank competition that I serve as a judge in. And one of the conversations we had after that was the whole concept of drop shipping where he doesn't have to manage all of his own inventory. He can just take that order, send it directly to the manufacturer who ships that product to the consumer directly. So there's drop shipping. As you were talking about the process for the doctor, they fill out the prescription that gets entered into the system and that triggers all of the equipment and the protocols to be sent directly to the patient. They never even have to come to the doctor's office. It's incredible.
2: Thank you, Tommy. That's exactly right. You know, my philosophy is when one is trying to create entrepreneurial constructs, you need to create an environment that adds the most value, and creates the least amount of friction for whoever you're trying to partner with. If we're going to provide a solution, how can we create a solution that is not only clinically and financially optimal, but also from a process perspective, optimal for that orthopedic surgeon to utilize our services? We want to be the easy button, where we do all the stuff that they don't want to do, and we're adding revenue, and we're giving them better outcomes.
1: And so, the patient wins and the physician's winning. I love it. And that's actually a good segue into my favorite part of the show, Shane, where I get to ask you two questions. The first question is the question everybody wants to know. And really, it's the question I want to know. And then the last question is really how do people move forward if they're excited about what they've heard today. But my question for you today is I understand this conceptually from the standpoint of the patient, you know, better outcomes, less pain, less opioid dependency. Very simple. I get it. From the doctor's standpoint, I sure get it a way to stay more involved with the patient's quality of outcome, not having to outsource that to a different specialist who may have a two-month wait list. They're able to actually take control of a better outcome for the patient and pick up some ancillary revenue along the way, which hopefully allows them to spend more time and energy with each patient. So, I get it from the doctor's standpoint, really simple. How does this impact the insurance payers?
2: Great question, Tommy, because they're an important part of the landscape. Oftentimes when entrepreneurs who are not familiar with healthcare try to come into the market, they don't realize that 95% of our healthcare system runs off of insurance reimbursement. So if you don't have a solution that works for the insurance companies, you're never going to get true traction, if you will.
1: And is Medicare part of that 95% that you're talking about? Yes, Tommy.
2: Medicare is a part of that. There's five major verticals in healthcare: workers' compensation, the VA, DoD system, commercial, Medicare, and Medicaid. And all of those systems, there is a payer. In some cases, it's the government, but in other cases, it's an insurance company or a self-insured employer.
1: Okay, so when you say commercial, this could be like. We have United Healthcare for our family that we get through our business. And so, if we were to go see an orthopedic surgeon, they would prescribe this, and then United Healthcare would be a part of the equation in that example. Am I understanding that accurately?
2: That's correct. In that case, United Healthcare would be paying for the program. Normally, for a new program like this, as a combination of device with tech enabled services, it takes you know, gosh, three to five years, if you're lucky to get insurance reimbursement. Absolutely. Yeah, we got insurance reimbursement the first month we were in the market. And that tells you something about the value that insurance companies see in the product, as well as you know the fact that we were successfully, fortunately, able to articulate the value proposition to insurance companies. You know, for them, it's really all about financial outcomes, And the insurance companies know that if a patient becomes dependent on opioids or narcotics, that in workers' compensation, for example, that patient then costs the insurance companies $40,000 a year for years on end. So when they look at the program, they're looking at it at the end of the day from a dollar and cents perspective. I mean, they're nice people and they care about all the right things, but their decisions are going to be driven off of financial outcomes. And so insurance companies, the results that they've seen off of the program It's very interesting. You know, we're almost three years into post-market launch, and the insurance companies have now gone to the ultimate level of adoption. The first level of adoption is when they agree to pay for it for the program, which they did the first month we were in the market. Now insurance companies are starting to use analytics to identify patients in their pool and proactively reach out to their doctors or to the patient directly and say, we think you would benefit from Harvard MedTech's VX therapy program, and we'd like to enroll you. So they have enough conviction that not only are they playing defense, they're actually taking the offense and putting more of their patients or steering more of their patients to the program because they know it's better for the patient and it's better for their bottom line ultimately.
1: And listeners, you're hearing this is one of the main reasons we decided at Mammoth to invest in Harvard MedTech. We were so impressed that not only was Shane's product in demand, but it was in such high demand that companies were figuring out proactive approaches to get more patients to use it because they know it's that effective and going to help everyone in the system save money. That's Part of what this whole movement towards value-based medicine is trying to drive is to take less cost going into the full system. Well, how do we do that? We've got to eliminate the major waste. Well, what's the biggest waste of all? Opioid dependency. (laughs) Absolutely, the biggest waste in the entire system, completely non-value-add, past the point of you know, reducing or band-aiding the pain while it's needed to be band-aid, there's zero added value to that opioid. So if we can get rid of that in the system, that's a major, major saver for the entire system. So Shane, really proud of everything you're up to and the work Harvard MedTech is doing. As I've said, we're very honored to be part of that journey and partnered with you from Mammoth standpoint. And for Vestia and Cameron and Cameron, I know this is exciting. I can see it all over your face. This is very exciting from your standpoint as a specialist working day in and day out alongside of orthopedic surgeons. I know you are excited about it. So Shane, this has been amazing learning more about you, your amazing journey to
0: Harvard MedTech, everything along the way. I can tell you from being an advocate and working alongside a lot of orthopedic surgeons, what you guys are offering is very unique. It is very hard to find a technology that can complement their ability to be a good surgeon, improve patient outcomes, take very little, if at any, input from them physically as a physician in their time and their energy, and can add financial revenue to their bottom line. That is a very rare recipe that you guys have going for you. And I really look forward to seeing more of you. I will tell you, I have a million more questions I'm going to ask you offline. This is just scratching the surface, I can tell. But it is technology like you guys are building that is disruptive to not only orthopedics, but all of medicine. I can just see a million use cases for this. And I really look forward to seeing you guys around more. And I actually am very excited to share your story with surgeons that I work with personally. Thank you,
1: Cameron. Well, I'm just glad I could get the two of you connected today, and I'm excited for you to take it offline and see where this leads uh, for both of you. Shane, as we move into our final question of the day, I'm sure somebody out there listening, whether they are a patient and they're dealing with pain issues right now, or maybe they're about to have surgery, or maybe this is a physician or an insurance company that's listening, and we have listeners from all of those segments If they are listening in today and they say, we want to do something about this, we want to make contact with Harvard MedTech, what is the best way for them to reach out to you?
2: Thank you for asking that, Tommy. It's a great question. I would respectfully ask folks to go to our website, harvardmedtech.com. It describes our program and the benefits, but also on the website, you will find a form to give us your contact information and we'll have one of our teammates reach back out to you very quickly.
1: So listeners, we will put that address for the website in our show notes, whether you get your podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else, it's harvardmedtech.com. And then if you go click on contact, that will take you to that form that Shane's talking about. What I would say, if you are a patient that is looking for this, go to your doctor, go ask your doctor, send them the website, say you're interested Get your doctor involved because they need to be the one that drives this program forward for you. If you are a provider or you're an insurance company, whether that's a mainstream kind of commercial carrier, or if you're a workers' compensation insurance company and you want to reach out to Harvard MedTech, you can get there that same way. Go to their website, go to that, contact us, and it'll take you right into an opportunity to get directly in touch with the team at Harvard MedTech. Shane, as Cameron said, this has been absolutely tremendous. We're so glad you took the time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us and our listeners. Listeners, you make this show great. We're so thankful for all of you. Thanks for being here. And we'll be right back here next week with Renji BJoy. The maker of the number one app in the virtual reality space. So, we're going to talk about virtual reality some more. We'll get a little deeper into use cases for virtual reality and how it actually works and how the technology has come so far along where you're not going to get motion sick anymore by using it. It's not just for games, this is for real world stuff like healthcare, as you heard today from Shane and like workplace productivity that you're going to hear next week from Renji. So thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you right back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.